podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I am Jason Robinson from The Secret Cellar, and I will be your guide along the path of suns. Today we sing, My Path Takes Me Strange Places. We will be talking about the creatures of the Invisible Sun. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. When we cast My Path Takes Me Strange Places, we discuss the setting of Invisible Sun. Before we move on to another sun, we wanted to talk more about the creatures that one can find under the silver sun. Just to recap, the silver sun represents creation, birth, and beginnings, so it's a natural starting point for the path of suns itself. Some even consider it uh, the closest thing we have to heaven on the path of suns and as part of the actuality. Thematically, the silver sun represents art for art's sake, that is the pure act of creation, not for some other purpose, but because creation is itself uh, a beautiful thing. So for many, this is considered the truest form of truth. And that tone uh, shapes the sorts of creatures one is likely to expect uh, under the uh, silver sun. Uh, as we've talked about over the past few weeks, uh, this is also a sun closely associated with the legacy. So you might want to, uh, if you haven't listened to the our episode on the legacy yet, that would be a good thing to uh, catch up on if you plan to visit the Silver Sun. We are going to just read through the uh, section on teratology about creatures of the Silver Sun, but we wanted to select a few that we liked in particular that illustrate the theme and tone of the Silver Sun and also I think illustrate the Monty Cook Games approach to designing creatures, uh, and which I I believe is a good signal as to what one can do when when homebrews creatures from Visible Sun, where to focus attention, uh, how to write them up, and where not to bother focusing too much attention. Well, uh, Jason is joining us again uh, from last week. Uh, Jason, would you g- give yourself a brief introduction uh, for uh, listeners who may not have heard last week's episode? Sure. My name is Jason Robinson. Um, I also have a podcast called The Secret Cellar, um, which is Invisible Sun adjacent, but just talking more broadly about modern storytelling and kind of creation in general. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be on your show today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming back. <laughs> it's my pleasure. That sounds like a location particularly uh, connected to the Silver Sun, though I believe it's more connected to gray, but so it goes. <laughs> Yes. Now that you've asked, yes. If you ever if you ever find yourself in zeros and want to poke around for a secret door somewhere, uh, you can make your way down into the secret cellar, uh, a liminal place between the gray and indigo. So uh, maybe it's the uh, the secret cellar. The place is connected to the gray. The secret cellar. The podcast is connected to the silver sun. <laughs> that is that is accurate. So okay, we want to talk about a few of the creatures uh, that we find spotlighted in the teratology related to the silver sun. A, a clear example really starts the list. There uh, is a creature called the Allegorn. Uh, it's clearly a name based on uh, the notion of allegory. That's where it's getting some of the, the root word for this creature's name. Uh, 
the physical form of this creature is a uh, that it is human-like, except with a blue flame for a head. Though the physical form of this creature is not its distinguishing characteristic. Uh, instead, uh, its purpose in a story is closely tied to the Silver Sun. The Alagorn always has a book with it. And its most notable action uh, is that it can draw objects into existence from out, outside of that book. So if there is a creature, a, an object, a character, or something in the book, it can literally pull them out of the book, um, as whatever literally means in Invisible Sun. Um, it can pull them out of the book and into existence in the Silver Sun. So it is a conduit for tra that translates material in books into uh, the Silver Sun itself. Uh, and that is very much an act of creation, and again, illustrates how this creature is attuned to the Silver Sun itself. The write-up also indicates that the Alagorn will serve as this conduit, will, will pull things out of books uh, into existence for trade, uh, but only is interested in trade for old tomes and you know, rare books that it might not otherwise have access to. So this paragraph write-up gives you an indication of the physical form of the creature, it talks about its most distinguishing action, this drawing into existence, as well as a role it can play in a story, because this is a creature that you could trade an old book to in order to perform that function. I think this serves as a model for how one can design uh, creatures in Invisible Sun, because you want to hit all three of those notes. You know, what does this creature look like? What does it what does it do that the players will remember and then how can you hook that creature into a part of the story so they play a part in uh, the narrative that the uh, and, and accomplishing the goals uh, that the characters are seeking to uh, to accomplish so when I when I first read through the allegorn I I got stuck on it uh, its ability to use this for defense and I thought it would be an interesting I guess guardian in a library because then it could pull books off the shelf and you know, oh, throw yes. monsters at the players. Um, but now the now that I've been thinking about it a little more, it might be really interesting to have this as a resource that you know the the characters could turn to to I guess consult with a character from a work of fiction that is known for being wise or knowledgeable. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Or even a biography. Oh, so like bring Abraham Lincoln into into reality? So, temporarily, maybe. Um, something along those lines. Of course, you talk about the, the defensive use of this power. Now I, I, I've imagined a, a library with that is just riddled with spelling and grammar errors. <laughs> and so the allegorn pulling things out of these books pulls out things that are never exactly right. Uh, <laughs> but that may be a little too slapstick for some uh, some tables. Uh, so Jason, are there any characters or things from books that you would want to see pulled into existence? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I found myself, I had two immediate thoughts when I read this and the first was like, wait, so what if the Allegorn got a hold of a copy of, uh, you know, the black cube and had like those books on hand, like that could be really wild. <laughs> um, and then my second thought was, uh, you know, if you had a character who like turns tales into reality, if that was their forte, it would just be so much fun to have them, you know, encounter an allegorn and they would either be best friends or terrible enemies. I think I'm not sure how that would go. 
Um, I do know that if Darcy Ross got her hands on one of these things, she'd probably have Batman come in into play. <laughs> Maybe multiple versions of Batman. Batman? Yes. The Justice League of Batman. <clears throat> that That is one of the... That is a comic, isn't it? Uh, there have been various comics that have multiple versions of Batman. This isn't a podcast about DC. Let's talk about Silver Sun creatures. <laughs> it is really, it is really fun. If an Allegorn gets a hold of uh, Scott's comic library, then yes, Batman very likely may find his way into the actuality. Swamp Thing. We we talked about Swamp Thing, right? No, we haven't. No, that that we've talked about talking about <laughs> Swamp Thing. <laughs> well, let's talk about that some more. Yes, we will. We will. What, o- what other creatures do we have under the Silver Sun that we thought were interesting? I think you might have talked about talking about the Swamp Thing twice before, and now three times. So, yeah, get on that. I think that means we summon it. <laughs> no, you're thinking uh, Beetlejuice. <laughs> uh, yes, Beetlejuice. Not in a wait. There's probably a comic book based on the cartoon, isn't there? Pretty sure. And there be there could be scripts in libraries that the Allegorn can draw from as well. Oh yeah, okay, then that totally works. Maybe even a DVD library, though that kind of breaks the visual. Which Batman from the script that he could pull from <laughs> would be the best Batman? I'm stuck with some sort of contrast between the uh, Dark Knight Returns Batman meeting Adam West. Uh, wrong. It's Michael Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> or Michael Keaton as Batman Beyond's Batman. Oh, did he do the voice for that? No, but he he's people are always trying to cast him as the Bruce Wayne for Batman Beyond movie. Mm. So, anyway. Um... <laughs> Jason, do you have any opinions about uh, the the ranking of Batman from the <laughs> TV and movies? I really don't. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that is nothing to apologize for right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of the creatures in the in teratology uh, are intended to uh, elaborate on uh, locations in that are described in teratology. So they are uh, creatures that have been mentioned before, but never. Uh, described in detail. An example of that are the Blessed Cartographers. These are inhabitants of the Tower of Beginnings. I believe we talked about the Tower of Beginnings several weeks ago when we talked mm-hmm. about the locations in the Silver Sun. They have cauldrons for heads uh, and oversee collections of maps and bless journeys. So we have at least two of the three uh, parts uh, that I like, like to see in all the write-ups. We have a description of the uh, creature and we have a discussion of where you might uh, encounter the creature or what that creature's purpose might be in a narrative. In this case, you might want to find a blessed cartographer to bless a journey or to find a map. Uh, it doesn't really have as cool a an action or as memorable an action. So there might be something you'd, you'd want to uh, write into the description of Blessed Cartographer of how they are storing their maps or how they reveal maps to make that stand out a bit. Uh, but at least you have a purpose and a, uh, a kind of an image or a description that you can draw from. Uh, there's another thing that they list on all the creatures that we really haven't talked about, which is the traits. 
you always get three little keywords that you mm. can use to just, I always use these as sort of a, uh, a writing prompt, I, I guess is the best uh, thing I can compare it to. But you have these keywords that tell you what these creatures typically act like. And the blessed cartographers are quiet, calm, studious. Um, so when I'm formulating, like, what's this NPC that my characters are talking to? What, what's their characteristic? You know, I always go to the traits and use that to, you know, model my voice and my mannerisms when I'm when I'm talking in character. So I always like that. Like they have that uh, for all of these things too, um, and that also leads me to recall uh, another thing I wanted to mention. These these creatures they're statted out with injuries and wounds and all that, but you know, a lot of the creatures under the silver sun they don't read to me as antagonistic. They read to me as uh, NPCs that you can use to drop into your game. The challenge would be getting to the blessed cartographers or convincing them to bless your journey. It would less be about beating them over the head until they cough up coins or whatever. Though I guess you could use their, their level and other modifications to determine how they would react in uh, a social encounter. How do you, how do you go about using these uh, stat blocks, Jason? Similarly, as you've described, um, yeah, I think the one other thing worth men mentioning, just technically, is they also, of course, as is true for you know cipher system and others things from Monty Cook, is they also have their little modifications block. Um, mm -hmm. So you've got a base level, and then you know a couple of ways to adjust things. So the Allegorn, for instance those traits you mentioned for the Allegorn are organized, bookish, and timid. Uh, it's a level four creature, but then it's got these modifications, plus three stealth, plus three manage, organize, and remember books. Like talk about niche, uh, you know, niche skills, but, um, but they also lend a bit of flavor to, again, what the, what the character is, what in their, they don't have a backstory spelled out here, but like, what have they spent their time in life doing? What are they good at? What are you likely to find them doing maybe when you stumble across them? And so I think those are helpful character prompts as well as sort of mechanical as well um, to sort of understand who this NPC is. Um, but yeah, I found myself looking at a lot of these and thinking, oh, I, I really want some of these creatures don't even feel like they could exist or would ever travel beyond the Silver Sun. But some of them look like maybe they would and it'd be really fun to encounter them briefly you know in saturine and then like you know use them even as an invitation to the silver sun or um you know kind of set up a an encounter that could happen much farther down the road when your characters travel there uh, uh was there anyone was, in particular that that stood out to you in that way um i was thinking a lot about let me find it here um I was intrigued by this Urchulata, a young woman with with flowers falling from the palms of her hands, can instill happiness with a touch and create small objects to delight and please others. And her gift is that she understands what small present would bring happiness to a close creature and creates that object, as long as it can be held in one hand and is worth no more than 10 crystal orbs. Her traits are helpful, altruistic, and gentle. And, you know, not, I think most of the NPCs... I agree they're not mostly entirely antagonistic, but they're also, they're tortured, man. They're all artists, and so they're they're complex. But this is one of the few that's like nothing but good. She just 
wants to help people and she can help heal. She can um, just be kind of a blessing to your characters. And I thought she'd be a really fun one to have as an introduction at some point, partly just because I love the idea from a GM perspective of like thinking about what gift she would, what tiny gift she would be giving that would feel magically perfectly attuned to what the players would be looking for. I think that could be a really fun player moment. And then I thought that could be a neat, like if she leaves her calling card, like, Oh, you know, come visit me in the silver sun sometime. Uh, it could be a really like one of those extra layers that you were talking about in the last episode of um, Dave of like, here's one more reason that you should someday come to the silver sun so that we can start working through all these arcs. Uh, it's interesting. The maker at my table, her favorite general spell does exactly what the Urchilada does. Oh, interesting. I haven't run into that one. I, I forget what it is, um, but it, yeah, it just creates a small gift that, you know, somebody would really like. Oh, that's really cool. Nice. Actually, there... I have a, I have a, a broader, a broader comment I'd like to say about this chapter. Sure. Um, <clears throat> you didn't know this, but you probably, you could not have invited me to a more appropriate show to talk about material from this book because, uh, man, the whole theme and tone and like vibe of the silver sun, it's so very, it's so very Jason in terms of, um, you know, I love this like preponderance of philosophy about beauty and like it's not all good and it's not all nice um but i love especially the sort of more complex uh major creatures at the end you've got conflagration who's like this singer who sings these the singer sings these beautiful ethereal songs but she's in fact made a secret faustian bargain where like her voice is really a demon living in her throat and so she's just haunted by as a matter of fact she's the lead singer for a matchbox full of faithful (laughs) (laughs) um but she's just haunted by the fact that everyone loves her and she sings this beautiful music and like she's just torn apart internally by the fact that she knows that this is not actually her voice and it's like it's imposter syndrome like embodied as a character and this is one of the things that i think invisible sun specifically and montecote games in general do so thoughtfully is kind of take very real complex human experiences and emotions and traits and like fold them very torturously and lovingly into their places and their characters and their themes. And so this whole book is just a collection of like reflections about the beauty of beauty and the ugliness of beauty. And um, they show up in a lot of these characters. And so just reading this chapter is a, is an utter aesthetic delight for me, uh, even separate from thinking about mechanics or gameplay. Yeah, another good example of that is the reconciliator, who I think uh, yeah. represents the pain, but the healing involved in in creative uh, activity. So a reconciliator yes. is uh, actually, let's see, uh, is a humanoid figure, uh, but which, which is all uh, with with a shrimp for a head. <laughs> but again, the, the the humanoid figure and it's it's what it looks like is the least interesting part, even though it does have a shrimp for its head. That's pretty interesting. Which is interesting, yeah. But the Reconciliator is known really for its function, uh, which is that it eats offered sins. So a petitioner will bring a sin to it, and the Reconciliator could consume that sin, which is a painful process for the person offering the sin, 
But after it is done, the uh, that person does feel a sense of relief because the memory of that particular act has been uh, has been erased. And so I, I see this as one view of uh, how how and why some people create how they how they make art um, that it is responsive to pain it is responsive to experience uh, often it is exp- ex- responsive to guilt or sin but it is expunged in, for some by this creative act uh, that is not itself again without pain without struggle but instead there's a sense of relief on the other side of creation um, and so this is one version of the creative act personified in a creature that happens to have a shrimp for a head. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's a perfect example. It's this little nugget. It's like, you know, one paragraph long, but uh, there's so much going on here. I also, even the shrimp for a head, you know, shrimp are bottom feeders, right? And like, uh, you can, the visual of just that process, you can imagine a shrimp with all of its like tiny, tiny little claws and feelers and things like, you know, like, like eating away at all these little things, uh, like mm-hmm. is just a, a horrifying and beautiful in this context visual. Um, but there's also this level, there's two extra notes. One, it's, it's talent that it has. It's, uh, it's ability is called sup on past wrongs. I'm just going to read it in full because it's actually even a little, there's more going on than what you mentioned touched creature who feels guilt over any past action must choose one either stop feeling guilty about it or lose the event of the lose lose the memory of the event entirely if they choose to stop feeling guilty they gain a joy but then a scourge to their intellect which lasts for five rests if they choose to forget they gain a despair and a scourge to their interaction and so you've got these I mean, what do we do when we are feeling guilty and working through like letting go of a thing we've done and like choosing to forgive ourselves that can go a few different ways. Right. And here you've got reflected that person who has chosen to uh, kind of come to peace with what they've done, still hold the memory of it and yet make peace with it and kind of love themselves and move on again and find joy in that. But um you know, they, they take a scourge to their intellect, their, their emotion, they're, they're mentally and emotionally depleted by that. And it's a process of grieving and working through that and, and forgiveness kind of. And then the other direction is that you can harden yourself and like, you know, convince yourself maybe that you were never wrong in the first place or that the thing didn't happen or just push yourself to move past it and really expunge that thing from your memory. And in that case, you gain a despair for kind of that loss of that part of yourself, that part of your history. Um, and then you take a scourge to your interaction as maybe your, um, you know, people in real life, we deal with that different ways, right? We might be really angry or really sullen or really withdrawn or whatever. Uh, and then I love the traits, patient, kind, quiet. And there's a side note, a reconciliator can feed only once on any given creature, no matter how many things the creature might feel guilty about. So this is not a a magic pass to perfection, but once in your life, you get to like do the hard work of being attacked by this thing and then wrestling with it and then walking away with your gift. I just, ah, with the traits, patient, kind, and quiet. I don't think it does a lot of attacking. I think it waits for uh, characters to come to it. Yeah. Uh, and and it right. is only a level two creature with a whopping three points of damage from its <laughs> claws. Apparently right. it also has claws. Um, so it is not built and certainly the, the stat block does not emphasize its combat abilities. Uh, any party, probably any individual character could just really 
map, mop the floor with this creature. Sure. But um, it is uh, that's not what it's there for. Uh, and I think a lot of the creatures in the in teratology, which we'll talk about incoming uh, segments, they're they're not there just to absorb sword blows and stand in the way of you and you know whatever your the treasure chest is. Um, they are filling different. Uh, niches in storytelling and the emotional needs and emotional challenges that the characters might face in this surreal world. So this is uh, a representation then of emotional, uh, different paths of emotional healing associated with creativity. And uh, healing is usually thought of as an unqualified good, but here it points out that depending on how you heal, you may actually be sacrificing different things. So if you heal by forgetting, that is a different type of healing process than healing by forgiveness uh, or self-awareness or something along those lines. And it's nice they paired them together uh, for a more direct contrast that you know how we deal with guilt uh, can vary. And there are different consequences for dealing with guilt in different ways. Yeah, exactly. Can I get incredibly secret seller on you for just a minute, Scott? Oh, Absolutely. So there's a poem. And when I said uh, that it attacks you, you're absolutely right. This isn't like a creature that comes to you looking for a fight. What I had in mind is one of my favorite poems of all time. It's by Edna St. Vincent Millay. It's called Assault. And uh, I'm going to read it. It's very short. One. I had forgotten how the frogs must sound after a year of silence. Else I think I should not so have ventured forth alone at dusk upon this unfrequented road. Two, I am waylaid by beauty, capital B. Who will walk between me and the crying of the frogs? Oh, savage beauty, suffer me to pass that I'm a timid woman on her way from one house to another. And like that, that sort of haunting, you know, lonely woodland, like crying of the frogs, whatever, mixed with just that feeling that we sometimes do get <laughs> literally attacked by beauty um, and you know we're overwhelmed with emotion in any of the directions that can take us um, just I kept thinking about that poem the whole time I was reading this chapter and like I see that in in the reconciliator as well is this kind of not an attack of like here something's jumping out of the bushes to get me but like the foreboding hunting fear of what beauty might do to you if you actually look it in the eye so right or in this case what uh forgiveness uh self-forgiveness yes. might look like uh, yes. and the role that creativity can play in processing that self-forgiveness yes this is why i really deeply love invisible sun scott <laughs> i love it other games not- i love other games too but i don't have these kinds of uh conversations while reading stat blocks for other games <laughs> Uh, that's true. It, it reaches for a lot. It does not always always succeed, but it that's does true. inspire conversation. <laughs> uh, speaking of conversation, would you like to take a moment to plug uh, where people can find you uh, and your and what you create uh, on the internet, whether it's about Invisible Sun or adjacent to Invisible Sun or anything else? Sure, of course. Um... Yeah, I mentioned it before, but I mean, the the biggest thing, I mean, A, I do creation for my job every day. I work for Northern Arizona University, which is uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona. It's a public university, and I'm a user experience design team lead. So uh, our whole team, um, 
Well, <laughs> I'll just say for any of you who have the, the teratology in hand, go read the description of Varuna Shaker the Sterling, who is basically an art director. And uh, <laughs> that is basically me and what my day job is. And then my prime creative outlet at the moment is um, is the podcast Secret Seller. It's, it's really been fun, A, because I get to bump against other brilliant creative people and kind of ask questions and hear stories about their processes. Um, and then... Another side thing I'm working on, also Invisibles Unrelated, is uh, I'm going to Gen Con this year, and I'm putting together a game, um, which I'll be running there, which is a crossover of Invisible Sun and a game called Sunless Sea, which is a computer game by the folks who made Fallen London. It's by Fail Better Studios. But the worlds just overlap very well. So um, I'm going to be co-GMing with Void Light, a game at Gen Con and I'm, I'm like thinking through that and putting it together and I'm really excited to be, uh, I don't know, kind of running a weird experiment in Invisible Sunland. So that's me. If you want to reach out to me, you can write to me at um, meet.me at zeros.bar and uh, I'm also Wafer, V-A-F-E-R on Twitter. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we will have to come uh, have you back again sometime. This is a great conversation. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you for helping us explore the silver sun. Absolutely. My pleasure. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive-Thru RPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha- help people find us.